Next, ReachMD presents this month's special series, Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science. As increasing evidence points to nutrition as a key factor in disease prevention and management, we're highlighting current topics, research, and best practices in the field. Eating disorders are said to be on the rise in the Western world, but what's the economic and the personal cost of this difficult-to-treat spectrum of disorders? Welcome to a special series focused on nutrition. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Luchard. You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Joining me today is Dr. Allegra Broft, who's Assistant Professor of Clinical Psychiatry and Research Psychiatrist at the Centre for Eating Disorders at Columbia Psychiatry in New York. Welcome, Dr. Broft, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Luchard, for having me on the program. So what are the definitions of the spectrum of eating disorders? The main eating disorders that are currently clinically characterized as distinct eating disorder diagnoses, say in the DSM-4, which you may know is the Bible of psychiatry, are anorexia nervosa and bulimia nervosa, where in anorexia nervosa, the real cardinal feature is a refusal to maintain a minimally medically acceptable body weight. And we, we often think of that as around 85% or less of what a doctor would typically prescribe as an ideal body weight for the patient. And there's a lot of associated psychological distress that along with that. So intense fear of gaining weight, intense preoccupation with shape and weight, and even refusal to be able to see that the patient is underweight. And that's sort of in contrast, although not entirely, to bulimia nervosa, which is the second distinct um, eating disorder diagnosis recognized by the dsm 4 where we really see the cardinal symptoms as recurrent binge eating. That's eating an amount of food, a much larger amount than is typically normal for a typical meal with an associated sense of loss of control around it. And that's followed it up by compensatory measures, cardinally vomiting, um, but also laxative use and other types of pill use like diuretics or diet pills in order to compensate for the calories ingested. And by definition right now of the you know, current DSM-4 criteria for bulimia nervosa, bulimia is typically something experienced in a normal weight range. Having said that, there are many patients with anorexia nervosa who are using those types of compensatory measures like vomiting, like laxatives um, in maintaining their underweight as well. Are there any statistics that divide the incidence of anorexia versus bulimia or is it impossible to do so in the patient population? Well, no, I wouldn't say it's impossible to do so, although it's probably worth pointing out that patients do oscillate between these two diagnoses at times. There was a fairly large study called the National Comorbidity Survey Replication Study, which I believe in eating disorders was published in 2007, which gave eating disorders prevalence rates of about 1% for anorexia nervosa versus 2% for bulimia nervosa, and that's lifetime prevalence rates in women. You might also be interested to know there's a third eating disorder diagnosis that's sort of an unofficial diagnosis at this point or provisional diagnosis of a binge eating disorder. In that same study, I believe the lifetime prevalence rates among women were about 4% for binge eating disorder. Do we know the incidence of eating disorders just in the USA? That study was specific to the USA, I believe so. So those would be the rates. And how does the incidence in the New York area where you practice compare to the rest of the country? I don't have good numbers on that. You know, certainly as clinicians, I think we have reasons to think that the exposures in urban areas and, you know, to certain societal pressures or cultural influences are particularly intense. For example, we may have certain professions like uh, the modeling profession that are concentrated here. And um, certainly there's some, you know, percentage of patients that um, contact us for treatment, you know, that come from some of those professions where body image and shape and weight are so overvalued. Is there a relationship between incidence and socioeconomic status? 
increasingly, the data does not necessarily seem to support that notion. We really do see eating disorders presenting across a variety of socioeconomic levels, although traditionally it was thought of as sort of higher SES diagnosis. And how's the incidence changed over the past 20 years of eating disorders? It's a little hard to compare studies of rates of eating disorders over time because the methodology used to assess has changed. I think that there are some hints that certain eating disorders are on the rise and certainly perhaps within certain subgroups as well. I think many of us clinically and anecdotally feel that eating disorders are on the rise. And I think that we feel that that's the message that we're getting from our patients as well. And as was described in a recent New York Times article, it also seems like hospitalizations for eating disorders may be on the rise, which may tell us something about what's going on overall with incidents prevalence. Or does that possibly also reflect a change in management, do you think? It absolutely might, and that would be a very hopeful thing, you know, if patients are getting referred to the level of care that they need. In your practice, what age group have you seen the most dramatic change? Clinically, it always feels most disturbing and I guess therefore dramatic when I get calls or we get calls from parents of 12-year-olds or even 10-year-olds seeking treatment, and that feels like something I notice more these days. The New York Times article you referred to also said that the incidence is increasing in the male population. Why do you think that might be? Well, I thought you would touch on a very important question. And I think that we are really very much as a field struggling to understand the mechanisms of these illnesses in general. And men with eating disorders have been particularly understudied. So we really don't know what causes these disorders, particularly in men. I think that we do generally view causes of eating disorders like many other psychological illnesses as a combination of psychological factors, environmental factors, biological factors factors, you know, and other cultural factors. And I I certainly think that there may be societal pressures that are distinct between men and women, but both genders are increasingly exposed to extreme body ideals in our culture in somewhat different ways. You know, for women, there may be a certain, you know, thin body ideal. With men, it may be about reducing body fat or, or the athletic ideal, but both ideals are in the culture right now. And is it possible, do you think, to estimate the actual cost of eating disorders both to the community and the individual patient? This is a great question and, of course, a very complicated one. You know, costs are numerous, both in terms of quality of life and financial. I'm aware of one study, for example, which said that the average cost of a year of treatment for eating disorders was similar to the average cost of a year of treatment for schizophrenia which I think is startling to think about. I think that maybe perhaps even more alarming is the fact that we know that eating disorders carry possibly the highest rates of mortality of any psychiatric illness. I have seen numbers that this mortality approximates 5 to 10% per decade of persisting anorexia nervosa. I think that the medical complications of anorexia and bulimia are numerous. Fortunately, some of them are reversible with good treatment and remission of illness, but some of them, you know, for example, the osteoporosis, which can be quite profound and emerge as a product of anorexia nervosa, can really persist even after uh, remission of symptoms. And, you know, we see relapse rates that in general are very high once a patient's developed an eating disorder. We, we often discuss with patients, um, you know, kind of a rule of thirds in a way in terms of prognosis so that a third of patients that we see tend to do quite well after treatment. 
and a third really tend not to do very well, and we see them kind of going in and out of hospital settings um, and other treatment settings, and then a third that wind up, you know, somewhere in the middle. They're alive. They may be, you know, functioning, but they may occasionally need increased level of care. So, you know, just from all of those perspectives, I think the financial, the medical, and obviously from the mortality statistics, I think that the costs are quite high. And we're always here at the Center for Eating Disorders so glad to talk to people about these illnesses because there's such a perception that I think in certain parts of society that they're fads or ways of making a fashion statement and they really go so much deeper than that. If you're just joining us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This is a special series focused on nutrition. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars, and today I'm talking to Dr. Allegra Broft from Columbia Psychiatry in New York, and we're discussing the economic and personal costs of eating disorders. Now, Dr. Broft, who's typically involved in the team care of patients with eating disorders? A very important question. So in good quality care, um, care will be provided by, usually by a multidisciplinary team, really, certainly to include a, a psychotherapist, uh, but maybe also a psychiatrist if there's, you know, indication that a medication might be helpful. A nutritionist can be essential for helping patients restructure their eating, and as well as a medical doctor like a pediatrician or internist. And those are, you know, team members that may be working together, whether it's an outpatient treatment or an inpatient treatment. And those team members should really be communicating amongst each other to all sort of help move the patient along and give consistent messages to the patient. There can be other types of treatment personnel or types of treatment that can be helpful, like group therapy treatments, day programs, you know, involving similar personnel may be frequently involved in the team care of patients with eating disorders where a patient will go to a a center and not necessarily stay there overnight, but, you know, eat one, two, or even three meals a day at the center. How many patients do you think require residential programs percentage-wise of the patients that you see? I'm not sure I can tell you an exact percentage. Um, It varies certainly across diagnosis. So we actually are getting increasingly good at treating patients with bulimia nervosa on an outpatient basis. And we actually have good evidence that there are psychological as well as medication treatments that will help those patients do well on an outpatient basis. With anorexia nervosa, the picture is a little bit less rosy. And there actually are a large number of patients, particularly with anorexia nervosa, that require residential or inpatient care. We actually usually make that recommendation when body weight becomes critically low, let's say when patients have lost 25% or more of their ideal body weight. The New York Times article we were talking about earlier said that a residential program costs in the vicinity of 30000 US dollars annually. Is that an accurate reflection of cost, do you think? I'm afraid that seems entirely accurate. And I've, I mean, $1,000 a day for a residential or inpatient stay is not unusual. And I think I've seen 2000 you know, it's upward from that even. Is it typical for an insurance company to cover that cost or not? Well, there's an extremely important question and it potentially creates barriers to care when that's not the case. And yeah, frequently, unfortunately, the answer is no, that insurance companies don't necessarily cover the long-term treatment. They may cover at the beginning, especially if a patient is medically unstable or at a really critically low body weight, they will cover beginning phases of treatment. But often once they've become medically stable or are out of that critically low body weight place, they will say that they won't cover the inpatient uh, treatment anymore, residential treatment, but that they will cover outpatient only. How do you manage the impact on the families of the patients who have eating disorders? Well, this certainly is a challenge as well. As you can imagine, a tremendous amount of strain and stress that, you know, these disorders bring to even the strongest families. 
family therapy can be very helpful. And in particular for adolescents with eating disorders, and I think this may have come up in the, the New York Times article that you've mentioned a couple of times, one of the best validated outpatient treatment approaches for anorexia nervosa is called the Maudsley Method. And this is basically a family therapy approach aimed at empowering parents and families in the refeeding process and basically sort of putting the responsibility of that back to the parents until the child is able to sort of resume those responsibilities again. If you had to describe one main challenge of treating patients with eating disorders, what would it be? Ah, it is truly hard to focus on one, but I guess I would say that the main challenge, especially in anorexia nervosa, is, as I alluded to before, we still don't really have clear-cut, definitive, evidence-based treatments, especially outpatient treatments for the disorder. We do know that inpatient treatment for anorexia nervosa is often very successful at facilitating weight gain and starting folks on the road to recovery. You know, for bulimia nervosa, we do have some good evidence that specific psychotherapies like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or certain medications like fluoxetine are helpful, but the recommendations are quite a bit less crisp for anorexia nervosa, especially in the acute underweight phase of illness. What are the specific risk factors for eating disorders? So certainly overall, female does still seem to be a risk factor in family history. There is also evidence of certain personality traits like high perfectionism as being a risk factor. And additionally, environments that place heavy emphasis on shape and weight, you know, such as athletic environments, dancers and models are uh, professions that confer particular risks. Do you see the same patterns of behaviour in families of patients with eating disorders? Absolutely. There's evidence that, you know, if you have a first degree relative that has an eating disorder, you're more at risk for one. Are there any new medications that you've been using in your patients that work for these eating disorders? As I mentioned, in bulimia nervosa, we have um, evidence of uh, good efficacy of certain medications. Fluoxetine is one of the best-studied medicines in bulimia nervosa, not necessarily the newest medicine, but is shown to have good effect, um, and that knowledge is not always out there. In anorexia nervosa, there have been a slew of medications tried, none of which currently um, have sufficient evidence behind them to really make them be a, a gold standard recommendation um, or have FDA approval for use. There is some interest in the development of certain medications that have been helpful in uh, things like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, actually, to treat anorexia nervosa. So the medication olanzapine is one medication that here at Columbia Psychiatry we've been particularly interested in. And finally, what resources exist for physicians who have patients with eating disorders? There are some national organizations that provide treatment resources and support to patients and families and can aid physicians as well, you know, in finding resources. Uh, the National Eating Disorders Association is one such organization. And there's actually a website with a funny name called somethingfishy.org, which can has some helpful treatment resources on it. Certainly here at Columbia Psychiatry, we are always very eager to speak with patients with eating disorders and their physicians to see if we can be of help. We actually have patients who travel across the country to participate with us. Well, thanks so much for talking to me today, Dr. Broft. You're welcome. We've been talking about the economic and personal costs of eating disorders in our society. You're listening to a special series on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. This has been a focus on nutrition. I'm your host, Dr. Mary Lushars. We welcome your questions and comments at www.reachmd.com. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to this month's special series, Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science. For downloadable podcasts of programs in this series, go to ReachMD.com and choose the series, Focus on Nutrition and Nutrition Science.